All right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith. We've got a terrific Thursday morning show for you. We're absolutely wall-to-wall with all the political dramas breaking out absolutely everywhere. We're going to go live to the United Kingdom this morning, the latest on the resignation of Boris Johnson as Britain's Prime Minister. Bojo says he will stay on until a new conservative leader is chosen to replace him. Some want him to go immediately, though. Laura Hood will be my guest. She's our go-to analyst on the ground in London. That's coming up in hour two of the show today. Closer to home at the national level here. Oh, man, the turmoil in the Conservative Party leadership here now. Patrick Brown disqualified. Oh, Pierre Polyev and his supporters, they just love that. Patrick Brown, though, he says he's not going without a fight. He has unleashed his lawyers on the Conservative Party of Canada. I'll speak to John Reynolds, co-chair of the Patrick Brown campaign on the plan to fight back. So that is all coming up later on the show. But first, we start closer to home here right in British Columbia. John Horgan stepping down as premier is David Eby stepping up. Will he be the next premier of British Columbia? Let's go back to what Horgan had to say here in his resignation announcement. Have a listen. I'm not able to make another six-year commitment to this job. And as a result, I've asked Darren Schumahetza, the president of the BC NDP, uh, to work with our governing body, the provincial council and the executive, to select a date in, uh, in the fall for a leadership convention. Okay, who will replace Horgan? Who will become the next premier of British Columbia? A lot of eyes were on Ravi Kaline, the cabinet minister. Uh, he was expected to seek the top job, and he has bowed out. Have a listen. But uh, today I'm here to announce that, uh, that I will not be seeking the leadership of the BCNDP. Uh, it's not the right time for my family and I. Okay, does this clear the track now for David Eby to take the top job, become the NDP leader, become the next Premier of British Columbia? Let's discuss it now with my guest Rob Shaw, political correspondent for Czech TV in Victoria columnist at the Orca and the Daily Hive. Hey, Rob, thanks for coming on today. Thanks for having me on, Mike. Okay, did it surprise you at all to, to, for Horgan to step down at this point? And, you know, that was only, like, what, nine days ago? It's incredible yeah. how fast things move in BC politics. I think it, like, it, we knew he was not doing well uh, with his health. We knew that he'd been skipping a lot of question periods. We knew he hadn't been in the, in the house. He, he looked like he was kind of not quite in it. And when he was here, he dropped F-bombs and stormed out of the chamber and kind of had lost his composure. We knew he was getting close, but that was fast. Right before he convened all the premiers here to fight for more health money, I was surprised that it happened that quickly. I was thinking yeah. after the premier's meeting, but, um, you know, not in, a, not in a larger sense, but it, he, he went out fast. He pulled the chute very, yeah. very quickly, and, and that caught me by surprise, yeah. Yeah, especially what, one of the things that jumped out at me recently was when he cancelled the billion-dollar museum project and took all the blame for himself and completely exonerated all the cabinet ministers on that file, said, look, this was my call, this is down to me, you can blame me for this whole thing. I thought, oh, man, okay, I think he's maybe getting set to exit stage right here. Uh, take uh, take that baggage with him, which I thought was kind of a classy move. Your thoughts? Yeah, it's a little bit like Band of Brothers, right? There's a grenade yeah. there, and he jumps on it, so the whole squad <laughs> doesn't get hit and takes the blow. But 
I, you know, in retrospect, sure, it looks like it looks like that. But um, I, you know, I just it's it's hard to overstate like how uncomfortable he has been since his yeah. radiation uh, uh, for his uh, throat cancer. He has to go around with a little spray bottle and spray his mouth because the radiation rendered him unable to produce enough saliva to speak. He's got to chug water. You know, he lost a lot of weight. His jaw shrank. Um, like he can't grow a beard anymore. Like he's he's fatigued. He's very very uncomfortable and uh you know he just yeah. didn't want to keep doing it and he's earned the right it's the most popular premier we've had in a long time and i guess he's earned the right to to go when he wants to go yeah abs- absolutely and he's going out in in many ways at a at a peak time when he's as you said he still remains popular in the, in the opinion polls okay rob let's talk about who is going to replace horgan here now so ravi kalon you know, a lot of people were looking at this guy, thinking he would run for it. Did did that surprise you that he stepped? That he's not going for it? That's huge. That was huge. Yeah. I mean, there's two, I think, front runners in this race: Ravi Kalon, David Eby. One yeah. drops out and endorses the other, and you get a you get a super front runner. Like you might as well put a crown on David Eby's head, hand him the scepter, you know, to unofficially declare him premier. Because it's hard to imagine him losing this race now. He's got. His original package, which was David Eby, Attorney General, big public profile, ICBC, money laundering, all that sort of stuff. And he's kind of more of, I consider, the activist side of the NDP. And then you add on Ravi Kalon, the jobs minister, great organizer, yeah. um, more traditional New Democrat, uh, the kind of more labor sort of New Democrat um, kind of uh, crowd that would be behind him. And you've got, you've got one unstoppable guy. And that's how we're sort of looking at David Eby now. It's like, is there anyone else who wants to take him yeah. on? Uh, he's standing in the middle of the ring flexing. And <laughs> does anyone else want to get in there? I don't, I don't think so. That's a pretty intimidating um, package to have to go up against. Yeah, let's listen to a couple of clips. So here's Ravi Kalon throwing his support to Eby. Let's have a listen. He's uh, delivered big things for this province already, and I think he would be an amazing premier. And I have already signaled to him that if he were, choos- to ru- if he were choosing to run, uh, I would support him 100%. Okay, and here's E.B. asked about his own plans, playing the cards close to the vest here. Have a listen. Uh, for my own part, I remain focused on delivering for British Columbians. Uh, I'll obviously be having conversations with my family, with my friends and my colleagues, with the party and with British Columbians about how we move forward together. Okay, no doubt in your mind, though, he's going for it. No, no doubt. No, I, yeah, think, yeah. He's, uh, I think he's in, he just hasn't declared, and I think this race is kind of over before it even began. But the question yeah. for the NDP now is, I mean, so it's, there's a double-edged sword, Smitty. Like, on the one hand, you avoid all the rancor and divisiveness of a, a leadership race, and you know, like I know from covering them all, they all end up with infighting, like, membership sign-up controversies, financial irregularities, you know, that, that whole kind of that, the disappointment that comes sometimes from a leadership race. But at the same time, you get energy, you get new ideas, you get new memberships, you get money. So the NDP's got to find a way here. Assuming David Eby is not acclaimed, if some other people want to run, they got to make a race out of it, they got to raise some money, they got to look like they're kind of talking to their whole base, the environmental side, the activist side, the labor side, the hard hat wearing worker side they don't want to they don't want to look like it's not happening but at the same time it may not even be happening at all so it's it's kind of a double-edged sword for them but i think it's a it's a better position for them there a couple of other names have popped up i mean people have talked about nathan cullen the former ndp mp 
now a pr- provincial cabinet minister, would he step up? Bo- Bowen Ma, you know, I think she has more or less ruled it out now. But do you see anyone else sort of stepping up, just at least to give them, a, give the party at least a, a, a some sort of a race or contest? Or do you think it's by acclamation for EB? I, I think if you're in the NDP caucus right now and you want to run against David Eby, you better go have a word with him before you announce your candidacy to make sure that you're not exiled into Siberia once you lose. <laughs> that's, I think that's really what, what you need to do. Um, it's possible that he wants a bit of a race and the party wants a race, and he'd be happy to run against Nathan Cullen and debate some ideas. Or uh, I, I think you know there, it would be better to have some diversity for the party, people like, like really good MLAs who might be future leaders of the party, Mickey Sharma, people like that, yeah. Owen Ma, like perhaps that kind of race would energize the party and really talk about some ideas. But look, when you get a guy who's that far ahead, um, <laughs> you want to make sure whatever you do, you don't burn any bridges with uh, what might be the 37th premier of this province. Okay, let's let's assume it. EB is, is the heir apparent here, and I agree with you, I believe he is. So how does he stack up as an NDP leader and a BC premier, and especially going up against Kevin Falcon, the new liberal leader? How do you see that fight going down? Yeah, well, I think for the Liberals, whether it was uh, David Eby or Ravi Kalon, um, you know, it's an easier fight than John Horgan. They they would have been in big trouble if Horgan stuck around. The question with Eby is, and I know him and you know him, he's quite a funny guy. He's very personable. He's yeah. got a good sense of humor. But the public sees kind of big, tall, dry, lawyer, um, you know, really competent guy. And he's got to project a bit more of his personality in there to go up against Kevin Falcon. And you know, the the Liberals are going to brand E.B. as an activist, uh, bring up his Civil Liberties Association stuff. He wrote a handbook on how to resist police. I don't know if that yeah. sticks these days. The NDP are going to turn around and brand him as a developer, um, you know, big, wealthy developer. So I think it's going to be an interesting fight. I don't know, you know, this day and age, maybe people were hoping for a little bit more than two middle-aged white guys fighting it out for the premiership again. But that's where we are, and uh, and it looks like it's where it's going to be, and I think it'll be a genuine fight uh, whenever we have the next vote. All right, welcome back to the show. As we continue to talk about Premier John Horgan, his resignation announcement, and now the contest to replace him, looks like it won't be much of a contest if David Eby, the Attorney General, steps up. Looks like the job is his for the taking. My guest is Rob Shaw, political correspondent, Check TV. Phone lines are open, 604 280-9898. Phone me and tell me your thoughts on EB. Would you vote for this guy? Do you think he would be a good premier for British Columbia? How do you think he matches up against the new liberal leader, Kevin Falcon? Phone me and let me know. 604-280-9898 is the number. Star 9898, toll free on your cell. Rob on the line in Surrey. Hi, Rob. Go ahead. Hey, Mike, yeah, I think it's actually it's good for the province. I think it's going to be a very exciting election, uh, EV versus uh, Falcon. And yeah. I think uh, both people are going to have to have new ideas to, you know, energize the, the people. And uh, I, I just think it's, it's, it's good for politics in general. And I think a lot of the last election win for the uh, NDP was due to John Horgan. And with all yeah. the respect to Mr. EV, uh, he's not John Horgan. And uh, I think it'll just be a, a fun thing to watch. Yeah, I agree with you. Uh, Rob Shaw, your thoughts? Yeah, you know, this NDP has the kind of cult of personality thing going with John Horgan. It is the John Horgan party. What does it mean in this day and age without him? Where does it stand? Can it stay centrist in urban Vancouver? Those are the questions 
um, you know, we have when we look at the next leader and whether it tilts back to what we would consider the more traditional NDP, which didn't win a lot of elections in BC's history. So that'll be an interesting shift to watch. Keep calling me, 604-280-9898 is the number. Got open lines right now, star 9898 on your cell. Brent in Victoria. Hi, Brent, what do you think? Hey, good morning, Mike. Hi, Rob. Um, yeah, definitely I'd vote for uh, David Eby. Uh, I call him the tower. He's uh, He skyrockets right over top <laughs> of everybody. I'm <laughs> looking up to him when I see him, right? <laughs> um, yeah, I, I definitely would vote for him. I, I think he has what it takes to, uh, you know, I mean, can't replace John Horgan, right? We all know John Horgan's personality. Um, I think that, yes, he's going to definitely go do a lot for British Columbia as the next premier. I mean, yeah, I think it's a no-brainer. You know what I mean? Like, I think he has it hands down that he's going to be selected as the next premier. But, yeah, he's going to have his hands full um, going up against Falcon. I'm no favor of Falcon uh, whatsoever. A lot of people don't know who he is. and uh, But, yeah, <laughs> I, but, yeah, I think it's going to be good uh, for democracy for sure. Okay, thank you for the call. Where do the Liberals yeah. attack this guy, E.B., Rob? Where Where is he vulnerable? Yeah, well, I think you attack him the same way you're attacking Horgan, which is doctor shortage, housing yeah. prices, yeah. affordability, gas prices. The NDP have been in power now for five years. It'll be six years next year. It'll be seven years by the time we have the next scheduled election. Have they improved these files? And you just kind of run on that. Uh, but it's, it's tough because Horgan was, he's a nice guy, even if he didn't, bring housing prices down, you still sort of thought, well, he's listening to us. He's fighting our fight. And that was kind of the magic sauce of his premiership. So I think that's where they go. Back to the phone lines, Daryl and Coquitlam. Hi, Daryl, go ahead. Hey, thanks for taking my call. Yeah, I would probably vote for David Eby. If he came out more as a centrist like John Horgan, right now he's probably perceived uh, more of a leftist, true NDPer. But if he can track to the middle, be more of a populist, as Horgan is, he could win. And he's going to have to make that move. We found in Canada a lot of a lot of premiers and prime ministers who are centrists normally win. Yeah, thank you for the thank you for that th- those thoughts. You know, Rob, you mentioned Eby's past as the head of the Civil Liberties and Association in British Columbia, and he, w- he was a, kind of a different politician, a different guy back then. Very, very critical of of the police, for example. Um, you, you know, the the Liberals obviously will try to drag that up. Do you think that sticks, or is it just too long ago? I think it's too long ago, but look, yeah. the NDP is not a centrist party, right? It's a left party, and it, the modern version of it right now under John Horgan was dragged centrist out of victory. They pushed in the election. They created this NDP, which is Metro Vancouver focused. Can you hold it? There's an environmental wing that wants to go radically environmental. There's a wing that doesn't want LNG or natural resources. There's a social justice wing, which is not happy at all with what the NDP government has done on um, you know, welfare rates and shelter rates and that. So, like, there's pressure in this party to not be centrist, and it takes a lot of work to hold it where it is. And, and that's the, I think it's the secret sauce for the NDP, but it's not, a, it's not easy at all. Okay. Hey, Rob, thanks for coming on today. Hey, anytime, Smitty. Thanks. I, I appreciate it. Rob Shaw. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk gas prices now. Gas prices sky high. And uh, we continue to, a lot of people continuing to struggle with it. Taking a look at gas prices at gasbuddy.com. There had been some indications that gas prices would be going down the next couple of days uh, before the weekend. Let's check in now with and, and discuss the uh, 
calls for a gas price cut. My guest is Corey Redekop, CEO, Greater Langley Chamber of Commerce. Corey, thanks for coming on today. Hey, Mike. Nice to be here. Okay. Have gas prices come down because there was some indication we we're going to get a break this weekend? What are you hearing? Uh, well, I, th- I saw 206 at the station on my way in, so I guess they've come down from 210 yesterday, um, but yeah. still 206 is wickedly high. So I think yeah. we're, we're talking, uh, we're, we're kind of rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic here. They're still epically high by, by my account. Tell me your concerns here. How is that impacting you and, and the, the people you represent? Yeah, for sure. So I, I'm with the Langley Chambers. So we're the voice and, and champion for, for businesses here in, in Langley and, and south of Fraser. And, and we've been hearing from our members now that it turns out this isn't transitory. We've all been kind of waiting for, for inflation to, 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 to peak and, and, and recede, and that doesn't seem to be what's happening. And now we're starting to see from businesses that it's actually having an impact, uh, fuel prices, which are up 30%, 35% uh, this year alone, or even the last four months or so. Um, and I think when you look at suppliers, you're seeing fuel surcharges going up, and, and that's increasing prices if you're trying to get your goods into your factory. We're actually hearing from employers who are saying now workers are saying, well, I'm sending an extra $100, $200 just getting to job sites or getting into the office, so can I get a wage increase? So now we're seeing wage inflation that's being driven by gas prices. So that's the thing with fuel is that Everyone uses it all along the supply chain. So, yes, it's, it's, you might say it's up a little per, uh, 30% here or 30% there, and, and government might not want to do anything, but it's, it's, it gets embedded at every stage. And before you know it, I think that's what's driving a big part of, of the, our inflation, which we know is now, what, four decades high? It, it's insane. Yeah. yeah. What would you like to see happen? You want the government to step in here and, and what, cut gas taxes, correct? Yeah, I think we're, we're trying to be reasonable and look for a temporary support to let families and people and businesses catch their breath just because it's been, this, as I said, it's been 30, 35% in four months. I mean, it's been deep and it's been fast, the increase in costs. So we're looking for uh, a temporary in, uh, uh, suspension of a few particular taxes. And we think we can get to about 30 cents a liter if everyone gets on board, which would save about 15 bucks for the family sedan to fill it up. And, and that's 160 bucks for, for a car. Or if we got two of them in a family, that's 120, $130. And that's real money that then can be spent taking the kids to the movies or going to the restaurant or getting your carpets cleaned or things that will actually support our local economy. So, yeah, we're looking at the, the $0.10 cent a litre federal excise tax. Um, uh, the provincial uh, BC has a, a couple of taxes that are combined under motor fuel taxes, which is about 85 And then the GST, which we pay on everything. Uh, we pay on, on uh, the gas and the taxes, too. And that'll be about 9 or $0.10, cents, uh, depending on how much it is, uh, how much the, the at-the-pump price is. So we think that gets us to about 29 30 cents, which, again, we think is, is real savings for people and would, would give everyone a little bit of a break over what's a really kind of tenuous time where we don't know what's going to be happening with inflation, the price of uh, and cost of living. Okay, so you're calling on, what, two levels of government here to cut taxes, provincial and federal, right? Yeah, we'd, yeah, we'd, we'd love to see uh, some collaboration on this. I think the, the, yeah. the heavy lift would be coming from the, the federal government because they'd have the GST and their, their excise tax, and that would be the chunk of it. Uh, but we think the province could and should play a role as well. And, and uh, we don't want to shoot ourselves in the foot, so I know t- taxes do pay for things. So, um, uh, so we, we want to make sure we're picking the right things to, to, to draw on or to, 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 to uh, suspend. Uh, but we think both, both levels of government have a role to play here. Both levels of government, let's not forget, uh, are, are kind of raking it in from inflation. Every time someone gets a salary increase, that's more income tax that goes to both. Every penny that you pay more at the grocery store, that means more in, in consumption taxes for GST and PSD. So we think that revenue can be used to offset some of the taxes that people are paying just for, the, for a temporary uh, time to give everyone a chance to, to catch up, catch their breath. And while we figure out 
Is inflation keep going high? Is it peaking? Have the other measures we've been putting in place as, as a government and as a central bank, are they, are they working? It's just been so fast, so deep. We think government should be doing something to support business. Yeah. Speaking to Corey Redekop, CEO, Langley Chamber of Commerce, about sky-high gas prices. They are calling for a reduction in federal-provincial gas taxes. So, like, what did you say, 30 cents a litre? That would, that would be the would cut? It, it would it would get us to about that if everybody if everybody wow. both levels of government came on board yeah and, and that's the thing I mean it, it'd be nice if if I'll, I'll take anything Mike so if, yeah. if the province just wants to do the eight and a half cents let, let's get on board we'll we'll cut the ribbon to be there with bells on and that'd be that would be that would be meaningful I think anything matters um, but we think if both came to the table and and exercised what some of the things that they have control over uh, we could actually make a meaningful reduction which would uh, I think would put some some dollars back in people's pockets and help just. Uh, everyone catch their breath for for the couple of few months where we don't know what's going to be happening with prices. Yeah, yeah. I mean, thirty cents a liter. If you were to cut those taxes overnight, that obviously would be a significant cut. But I wonder if you know, I'm, I, the people listening are just probably loving hearing what you're saying. Is yeah, bring it on. Let's cut those gas taxes. But man, you take a look at the two governments we're talking about here: the provincial government, the federal government. They show absolutely no interest to date in cutting gas taxes. And in fact, the, the federal finance minister, Christian Freeland, was, was bragging the other day about how she just recently jacked up the federal carbon tax, even though there is record high inflation. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Doesn't matter that there's record high inflation. This government is going to continue to increase the carbon tax. That's their priority. So where do you see any kind of willingness or, or uh, of either of these governments to cut taxes because i sure don't see one uh yeah i don't i don't i'm not suggesting that it's a, a, an easy an easy paved road that we can that we can all take but i think what we need to be doing is having more voices like ours and like your listeners saying that this is this is unprecedented we know hey we know the carbon tax is, is designed to increase the cost of fuel i mean that's what it's there for yeah. we know we that we need we need to transition these things but the reason why both governments and here in bc for over for what 15 years we've been staggering and 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 ratcheting up the carbon tax because we realize they can't just slam the brakes on so the, they know even in their own their own accord they know that they have to slowly increase a carbon tax you also have to slowly increase prices to change behavior to give people a chance to make some changes what we've seen here is we, we've we've done carbon tax on on steroids we've jumped to 210 212 2 2 i got up to as high as what is it 230 a few weeks ago a liter um and people just can't change their behavior that fast the, the economy can't pivot that fast um so that's why we're saying well we've these, these are these are record-breaking unprecedented price increases let's take the foot off the gas so to speak uh let's give everyone a chance to, to catch their breath eventually we'll we'll figure out how to how we can accommodate this and maybe gas prices will will moderate or maybe the central bank measures will will tame inflation um but to have your your fuel costs go up as fast as they have as quickly as they have is making a real hardship for people for families yeah. and for businesses and I, and I think that's that's the thing no one we, we all know where we have to be on a, on a long-term uh, trajectory here but we're talking about the last four months and, it, and it's a, a real hard hit for a lot of people yeah, and you, as you pointed out, those fuel costs, when they're this high, they get embedded into the price of everything else al- along the supply chain, and, and it forces prices up across across the board. At the Chamber of Commerce there in Langley, you guys represent business there. What are you hearing specifically from from business? Because gasoline, fuel costs, that's an input cost 
for a lot of businesses that are trying to get by right now. So how does that affect, like, what are you hearing from your people, from businesses about the price of gas and how it's affecting their business right now? Yeah, well, I think I think it's, the, it's, it's not hard to, to picture where it could be impacting a business. If you're thinking, yeah, picture a, a plumber or an HVAC company, if they've got to pay an extra 50, 60, 70 bucks to get to to get to their sites, because remember, these are these are our, our service people. They can't take the bus. They've got to get to they've got to get to your your house to fix your toilet. They've got to get to your business to fix your HVAC system. If they're having to pay more to fill their trucks up, that's going to get passed on. It has to get passed on in some level to the consumer, which leads to inflation, or it has to be eaten by the business, which leads to less of a margin for them. And we, if your listeners might remember, we've had a bit of, a bit of a few things hit businesses the last two years, and there's not a ton of of margin or money in the bank for some of these businesses. So so that, that's an obvious example. The thing that I thought was interesting is that is, is that wage thing. And we've seen, we, we all know the stories around wage inflation and how hard it is to find and attract labor. And businesses are, are doing tons to try to keep, keep and attract people to work for them. But then we've also seen on top of those market forces, we've seen things like the minimum wage and the employer health tax and the sick leave. All these things get stacked on. And I thought it was interesting. I heard from a few employers who were saying, they're actually having employees saying, well, hey, I, if, you, if you need me to come into the factory, even if you need me to go visit clients and things, again, things you can't do on the bus, um, I'm paying 60 bucks more, 100 bucks more, 120 bucks more in, in gas. So can I, get, can I get that reimbursed? Can I get a, an extra dollar an hour? So you're, you're seeing gas prices now not just hit input costs. On, on hard goods and services, you're actually seeing it on in wage inflation. And again, that's where it starts to layer on. So yeah, your, your donut and coffee is going up by, uh, by a dollar. Well, there's probably a little bit of, of fuel in that from getting the donut to the restaurant, a little bit of the worker getting to the restaurant, a little bit of the, the flour getting to the factory. It all stacks up um, and it's fueling uh, uh, the, the inflation that we have. And, and yes, what was it, seven and a half, seven point seven percent 7.7%? I mean, we've, yeah. I've never seen this in my lifetime. And I've, I think probably few of your listeners would have to remember a long time back to see inflation this high. And I think that's, that's what happens something, when something increases so dramatically, so quickly. Um, and if, unless someone knows something that I don't on where it's going to be going in three or four months, um, I think we should take some action to help mitigate it in the meantime. How long would the gas tax cut be in place for in your mind you mentioned you you're looking for a temporary reduction in gas taxes not permanent how long would temporary be yeah i mean i, I think that that devil's all in the details on that i think we would have to i think government should look and see well what what is a, a reasonable frame framework is it the rest of the year i think that's what ontario's done with theirs to see okay we're going to have probably an in, uh, interest rate increase next month they're talking maybe another one before the end of the year do we start to see inflation come down? Does another five, six months give us time to figure out what's happening with world oil prices and the conflict in, in the Ukraine? So I think, I think, yeah, a number of months would give us a chance to at least see well, where are we going on this and give people a chance to catch up. I think businesses are resilient. We can figure out how to, how to pinch and scrape and, and make sure that we can get by with higher costs. Uh, but not when they when they go up 30 percent in a couple of months. So I think uh, yeah, a, a temporary uh, measure to give us all a little bit of breathing room, give government a time to figure out what's going on yeah. with, with the markets here. And then and then we can reassess and see where we're going from there. I mean, I'll take I'll take permanent tax cuts for business any, any day I can get them. Uh, but we realize that this, yeah, these taxes fund things and, and it's, a, it's something that right. we need to be doing. But uh, just not this yeah, prices can't be this high, this fast. It's just it's just untenable. Thanks for coming on with your thoughts on it today. Appreciate it. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks, Mike. Take care. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the drama out of the United Kingdom today. Boris Johnson resigns as the British Prime Minister. This is a long time coming. 
Uh, the resignations began to pile up on Bojo, and he finally threw in the towel today. Let's have a listen to him making the announcement. Have a listen. It is clearly now the will of the Parliamentary Conservative Party that there should be a new leader of that party and therefore a new Prime Minister. And I've agreed with Sir Graham Brady, the chairman of our backbench MPs, that the process of choosing that new leader should begin now. And the timetable will be announced next week. And I've today appointed a cabinet to serve, as I will, until a new leader is in place. All right, Boris Johnson making that announcement this morning outside 10 Downing Street, saying he will stay on, though, as prime minister until a successor is chosen. Some people want him to leave right now. Let's discuss it now with my guest, Laura Hood, editor of The Conversation UK. And we reached her in the United Kingdom. I'm very pleased to welcome her back to the show. Hi, Laura. Thanks for coming on today. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me. It's quite a chaotic day over here. <laughs> I have no doubt about that. Uh, what's it been like there? Was this a surprise to see Johnson go at this point? It was it was never it was not a surprise that it happened. It's been coming for a long time, but I think it became very difficult to see how it was going to happen. Um, once the resignations came from his chancellor and his health secretary on Tuesday night, the writing was on the wall. But then, as, as you said, we had this absolute avalanche of resignations yesterday. They just kept coming. And it really did feel like he would resign last night. So I think a lot of people went to bed last night extremely surprised that he was still in post. And then this morning, he finally gave up the ghost. Yeah, and you mentioned that the, those resignations really started to pile up, including some of his, his key cabinet ministers. Let's listen to the health secretary here, Sajid Javid, uh, and, when he, and his dramatic statement in the House of Commons here that he was stepping down. Have a listen. And now this week again, we have reason to question the truth and integrity of what we've all been told. And at some point... We have to conclude that enough is enough. I believe that point is now. I have concluded that the problem starts at the top, and I believe that is not going to change. Why do you think that for some of these cabinet ministers who stuck by Johnson all these months, what, what was the tipping point here? Like, What was the final straw that forced some of these key cabinet ministers to pack it in? So on the face of it, the final straw was a scandal involving a senior member of Johnson's government who um, has been uh, the subject of very serious allegations of sexual misconduct. Um, But what's really happened here is that Johnson was lying to his party about this matter. It was the final straw because he told them that he didn't know anything about this or he, he only had very vague understanding of of what the allegations were but it it later emerged that he seemed to have quite a a good amount of knowledge about how serious the allegations were before he promoted this man to a a senior position that's what um, really triggered the resignations in the end and and his MPs just no longer feel like they can they can go into an election with him Um, he's really just looking like an absolute liability um, at this point and and we we just can't take it anymore. What was your analysis of his comments today in his resignation speech news conference did he accept any any fault or blame what was your read of him that was the one thing that was absolutely lacking from the speech today it was an incredibly interesting speech um he was bullish to the last he um made it very clear that he felt that his cabinet had made the wrong decision in calling for him to leave um that he felt that it, it was his duty to the country to stay 
Um, but they were the ones that were succumbing to what he referred to as um, a herd mentality in getting rid of him. Um, so there was no apology for any of the scandals um, that have taken place over the past few weeks that have emerged um, since the end of the pandemic um, era large. Um, so it, it, he really just did not have any apology, didn't have any thanks, didn't um, name any of his ministers, really just did not accept any fault whatsoever. Um, it was absolutely fascinating to watch. I don't know why we might have expected anything different from, from this prime minister, but um, it really was quite surprising. Speaking to Laura Hood, editor of The Conversation UK on the ground in London, on a dramatic day, the British prime minister, Boris Johnson, stepping down. Um, Johnson saying he will stick around as prime minister until a successor is chosen. Some people not happy with that. Let me play a clip here for you from the opposition leader here, Labour leader Keir Starmer, and his reaction to Johnson's announcement. He, he says he wants Johnson out of here right now. Have a listen. He needs to go completely. None of this nonsense about clinging on for a few months. He's inflicted lies, fraud and chaos in the country. And... You know, we're stuck with a function with a government which isn't functioning in the middle of a cost of living crisis. Okay, well, you expect his political opponents to exact as much damage as they can with the situation here, but I wonder, Laura, do some conservatives agree with the Labour leader here that Johnson should should leave right now? Forget about hanging on. Unfortunately for Johnson, yes, very many Conservatives do. And particularly in the wake of this resignation speech, um, there is a lot of anger expressed um, over his tone. And now um, several people are calling for him to not stay on as a caretaker. They hadn't wanted him to stay on um, in the first place um, when they were having these discussions about his future last night. But it seemed that they made a concession and, and, and let him carry on. And it's not unusual for a prime minister to stay on as a caretaker while a leadership election takes place. That does happen all the time. Um, Theresa May did it. David Cameron did it. Um, but I think what's different in this case is that people feel he has presided over a period of absolute chaos and is therefore absolutely not the safe pair of hands that is required at a moment of, of quite um, significant economic crisis particularly. Some very difficult decisions will have to be made in the next few weeks. Johnson's made it clear in his speech that he's not really got anything in his mind other than his own future. And I think that's really undermined a lot of trust, um, what, what was left. Um, and people just don't really have faith that he can um, make the right decisions in the, for, for, in the interest of the country over the next few weeks. Speaking of the next few weeks, we now look forward to a conservative leadership uh, process and a contest. How does how is that going to unfold? How long will that take? And do you is there any kind of clear front runner to replace Johnson at this point? So leadership contests contests take um, anything between about four and six weeks. Usually, they will try and get things moving as quickly as they possibly can. The process is that um, anyone who's got a certain threshold of support from the parliamentary party can stand in the first round. Um, and then the, the Conservative Party will vote until they've got two um, candidates remaining. And those two candidates will be put um, to an election of the Conservative Party membership. 
Um, the worry right now is that there is an absolutely vast array of uh, candidates for that first round, and they're quite concerned that it's going to turn into what I think one parliamentarian referred to as wacky races, um, with absolutely <laughs> everyone and their dog standing up for the leadership just to make a name for themselves. So at the moment, they're talking about how they can set that threshold to um, ensure that you don't just have, you know, 40 different people standing. People are already coming out, declaring themselves or at least making moves to show that they're interested. Um, in terms of front runners, that's been a real problem throughout this whole um, drama. Uh, I think if there had been a clear successor, uh, Johnson would have been ousted absolutely weeks ago. Um, at the heart of this issue is the fact that there is no clear successor and he's deliberately orchestrated it that way. Um, so although uh, there are sort of various different people who are often spoken of as contenders, each of them has a, has their own strengths and weaknesses. Many are popular with the party but have no public profile. Um, many have compromised themselves. Um, the Chancellor, for example, um, various scandals involving him in recent months have thought to have put him out of the running, although he may be sort of having a bit of a comeback moment after his um, declaration of uh, resignation the other day. Okay, well, we're watching it closely. The drama never ends. A wild day in the UK today. Laura, thank you for taking the time for us today. I appreciate it a lot. No problem. Anytime. Welcome back to the show. As we continue talking about the political drama unfolding today in the United Kingdom, the resignation of Boris Johnson as the British Prime Minister. Let's keep discussing it now with my guest, Garrett Martin, professor at American University. Very pleased to welcome him to the show. Garrett, thank you for coming on today. My pleasure. Thank you, Mike. Your thoughts on the resignation today? Was this a surprise to you or to anyone else? No, I think it really had a feel of inevitability after the events of the last few weeks, the last few days, my apologies. I think the sheer number of people who had abandoned him, especially you know, close to him, allies in the cabinet, the large scale of opposition within the, his own party, and the threats that there would be a new leadership challenge to remove him, I think the writing was essentially on the wall. Yeah, what did you think of his resignation and speech today? Well, it was very typical Boris Johnson in a way that he, there was no real contrition, no real excuse, no real sense of apology. Uh, I think he's still trying to cling on desperately as long as he can, talking about staying as long and maybe in, in the autumn. So it was very much classic vintage Boris Johnson. Who do you see now as a potential replacement? Well, that's a very good question. I, I think the, the interesting element is that there is no clear front runner in many respects. You have a number of people who are likely to throw their hat in the ring. Uh, I'm thinking some people like Richie Sunak, who was a Chancellor of Exchequer, um, Liz Truss, who was a Foreign Secretary, uh, Ben Wallace. Uh, you know, we're likely to have quite a number of candidates, but I think the key element is that nobody is really standing out. And I think this could be a, a long pro process. There could be like multiple rounds, and it's not very clear who's going to emerge on top from the moment. Speaking to Garrett Martin from American University about the resignation of Boris Johnson, Johnson indicating that he will stick around as a caretaker prime minister until a successor is chosen. Some people not happy with that, including members of his own party who would like to see him leave immediately. Could there be further pressure on Johnson to step down completely? Yes, I, I assume I would be very surprised if he was still a caretaker prime minister in October, let alone you know at the end of the summer. 
I think there's going to be huge pressure within his own party. Uh, the committee that basically organizes this election, I think, is talking about changing the rules and accelerating. And I think that the key element here is not only is Johnson so unpopular currently, massive unfavorability rating, so he would really be a liability to the party, but it's also the depth of the challenges that the UK and many other countries are facing. So there's a real sense of urgency, I would say, to get someone to replace him. Right. And what was the final straw here for Johnson? How did we get to this point? It seemed like a a long collapse of a house of cards here that took a long time to get to this point. At one point, yeah. it seemed like Partygate was the big scandal everyone was talking about, and it, it, he seemed to survive the Partygate affair. What took him down eventually, do you think? Well, I think it's just the accumulation, really, to be very frank. Um, you know, you're absolutely right that if we look back, the, the revelations of Partygate in early 2022 really significantly weakened him. I mean, his, on, you know, his on lack of popularity was stark. And in a way, he was temporarily saved uh, by the war in Ukraine. But he had essentially entered what I call a zone of vulnerability, where a large number of his own party had lost confidence and, and when we're just waiting for another opportunity. And so you had Partygate, but then you also had the release of the reports by the civil servants in, in May, um, the fines that were imposed on him and others, I think, again, put his credibility on the line again. And then the vote of no confidence also showed back in about a month ago that the, the depth of opposition, I and mean, he narrowly survived this vote of no confidence. So in a sense, that, that story of last week was more minor maybe than the others, but it was really the final nail in his political coffin. What kind of legacy does Johnson leave behind when the history books are written? What will be written about Johnson? How will he be remembered? Well, I think there's two ways by which he's all inextricably tied his legacy. One is Brexit, and two is Tory sleaze or dishonesty, to be very frank. I mean, he is fundamentally associated with Brexit. Uh, he, that's how he really was able to get into office and become prime minister. And he did, arguably, was the one who finished and completed it. So whether you supported Brexit or not, uh, it is a very consequential decision for the future of the United Kingdom. So that's one. And the second, I think, is really all the dishonesty, the sleaze, the scandals uh, that really dominated a large part of his uh, political life and, and time in office and predated his time in office, to be very frank. About 30 seconds left here. Do you think that the Conservative Party is able to rally and come back under a a new leader. You've got the his opponents, Keir Starmer, notably the Labour leader, been calling for Johnson to resign for months. Now here we are. The the resignation is here. But there's that old saying in politics: you won't have him to kick around anymore. Is a, could a new leader under a Conservative Party rejuvenate them? Yes, it is possible. I mean, they have done this several times. You know, they got rid of David Cameron and you know won the next election with Theresa May. They did it with Theresa May getting rid and Johnson winning. It's going to be difficult because they've been in office for so long. So that's going to be a challenge. There's wear and tear. The two saving graces is that the next election could be as long as two years away. And B, Labour has its own division. So I think those are the two saving graces, but they face a really uphill battle. Thanks for coming on today. I appreciate it a lot. My pleasure. Take care, Mike.
Right. Let's keep talking about the political battle over the future of the Surrey Police Service. You just heard my conversation there with Surrey City Councillor Brenda Locke, and she is running to be the next mayor of Surrey. And she says if she wins and has the support on council, she will pull the brakes on this whole thing. Just stay with the RCMP and forget a local police force in Surrey. Can that be done, or is it too late to change course? Let's check in with Norm Lipinski now, chief of the Surrey Police Service. Chief, thanks for coming on today. Good morning, Mike. Good to be here. Thanks a lot for doing it. You, you're well aware of uh, Councillor Locke's position on this. She says she would scrap the Surrey Police Service. What do you say? Well, first of all, as a police chief, uh, I don't get uh, involved in politics, but uh, I do get involved in the facts and the law. And uh, any municipality has the option of either having their own police service or contracting out. In this province, obviously, it's the RCMP. However, what people miss is that the province is ultimately in charge of policing. And it's in the charter. And as such, any change in policing has to be authorized by the provincial government. You may recall a number of years ago when this project first started and council was unanimous in voting to move towards a municipal police service that the province required a number of reports. There were actually two studies done before the province said, yes, uh, you can effect adequate and effective policing in Surrey, and as such, you can move to a municipal police service. So the province has to have that uh, say. It's, uh, it isn't done with just the uh, mayor and council. Okay, well, presumably, if the a majority on city council went to the province and said, look, we've changed our mind, we've done a rethink on this, I mean, why would the province stand in the way of that? I think we have to think about what is reasonable under the circumstances and what is fiscally responsible under the circumstances. So why would the province keep flipping back and forth? That's for them to answer. But uh, I think there's a, there's a question there, especially since now, Mike, I've been involved in this project a year and a half. I deal with three levels of government and uh, nobody has indicated in any way, shape, or form that this is some sort of an experiment. We have support from three levels of government that we're moving forward. And uh, nobody's given any indication that, well, we'll just wait and see, and then maybe we'll reverse this. It's, uh, it's too far down the path. And uh, again, what is fiscally responsible? What is reasonable to do under the circumstances? Speaking of Surrey Police Service Chief, Norm Lipinski, in my conversation earlier with Councillor Brenda Locke, she said that the Surrey Police Service, as it's unfolded to date, has been a, a failure, in her words. She said there have been delays, you've not met deadlines. She said there are 50 police officers right now, or effectively, or dozens of police officers who are basically warehoused in a non-functional office, wasting the public's money. What do you say to those criticisms? I think that's not true. And the reason I say that is, uh, you know, we have 237 police officers right now. Uh, we've got uh, 85 people on the ground. In a week, we're going to have 121. Uh, our recruiting is going extremely uh, good. Uh, we have uh, 14 people at the Justice Institute. Those are brand new recruits. 
Uh, we're hiring already for September. Uh, we're moving forward. We, we receive good feedback from the community as our members go to calls or go to community events. And uh, I think uh, we're here to stay very clearly. And uh, we're demonstrating that uh, every month. Last question for you, Chief Lipinski. The councillor also says that this is too expensive for the people of Surrey. It would be a lot cheaper to just stay with the RCMP. How much more expensive is it to have a, a local police force instead of the Mounties? Well, uh, three years ago, when the plan was put together, uh, $63 million was allotted to uh, the changeover. It's called one-time funding to make this work. So uh, to date, um, uh, I have spent about half of that. And uh, it's, it's to buy things such as uh, IT equipment and other equipment, et cetera, et cetera. These are things that you buy once and you keep them for a long time. It's part of the transition because uh, we can't use the federal government uh, equipment or servers, et cetera. So uh, right now, the I'm halfway through the 63 million that's been allotted. That's uh, above and beyond the wages that are given to the membership. Right. Okay. So you've already spent a little over 30 million then on the transition, correct? Yes. Roughly, right. Yes. Yeah. And and if you were and if a new city council was to say, "Oh, wait a minute, forget this whole thing. Let's just stick with the Mounties," that would just be what money down the drain wasted. That would be wasted money. And uh, you have to keep in mind, if you have all these employees, what do you do with all these employees? I think you have to also keep in mind, what do you do with the union? We have a police union. uh, And uh, you're talking about all the money that we've already spent in this. And you're talking about all these people, the, the members. What do you do with 300? Because by the fall, I'll have 300 police officers. What do you do with them? Do you lay them off? Do you fire them? Etc. So you have to look at how reasonable it'd be a decision to look at alternatives and how fiscally responsible is that? Yeah. Norman Lipinski, thank you for your time today. Okay, you're welcome. I appreciate it. As Norm Lipinski, chief of the Surrey Police Service, say it's too late to go back now. What, what? Put the brakes on this and go back to plan A and keep the Mounties? He says, no, that would just be a waste. to be a waste of money. You heard my conversation earlier with Brenda Locke running for mayor saying that's precisely what she would do. She can put the brakes on this whole thing, cancel that local police, Surrey police service and stick with the Mounties instead. Wow. Talk about a huge issue in a fall election here in the city of Surrey. Let's see what people say about it on the open line. Greg and Maple Ridge. Greg, thanks for waiting. Go ahead. Uh, no problem, Mike. Uh, I don't know the first thing about being a cop, but uh, I, wor- I worked in a very, one of the largest firms in the country for almost 40 years and uh anyway if they cancel this police force i can't imagine the buyouts and uh yeah and such things especially attached to senior management they, they get yeah. huge buyouts and i wouldn't good for them that's what you have to sign when you're in that position but i i think it's just insane i personally think it should be a regional police force but then have yeah. the mounties in charge of federal stuff but uh you know that's just my opinion, but it is thanks. too late to go back. Like, uh, thanks for the thanks left the barn, man. Thanks for the call. I, I think you're, let's let's not kid ourselves. It would be an expensive proposition 
to do a rethink and do a do-over on this for sure. Ivan in Surrey. Ivan, what do you think? Well, hi, Mike. Thanks very much. As you know, I'm the uh, coordinator and founder of the Keep the RCMP in Surrey. And uh, I listen to Lipinski now, and of course, he'll say anything to keep his job, and he will say anything like fiscally responsible. He doesn't know what the word means. The, uh, the, the thing is about it is that he will, he will try and justify, and what do you do with these people that are going? The horse has not left the barn. It's just mm-hmm. on a tether at this stage, as far as I'm concerned. It's money down the drain. Well, you know, well stop it, because the amount of money that we will be spending in the next 10 years is close to an extra quarter of a billion dollars, Mike, and he doesn't bring that up. He's just looking after his job and, 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 and right. that. They can stop it immediately. 50,000 people of my organization are against this SPS.